Welcome to the Home Assistant Podcast, Episode 3. And today I'm joined by uh, two guests and one of my regular hosts. Hey guys. Hello. Hey. So I've got uh, <laughs> everyone all at once. <laughs> so I've got Rohan here as my um, host and then I've also got Peter and Paulus um, as our guests. And a special welcome to Paulus being the, the founder of the Home Assistant uh, project. And without him, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm going to actually uh, drop you in it straight away and um, have you up first. Um, you had a couple of things that you wanted to, to talk about, um, especially the um, the updater and the stats that you collect and um, also a little bit that changed in 0.47. Uh, yeah, I think um, first off, I want to just say that I'm really amazed by the podcast. Like it's, you know, I was a bit skeptical when you guys first approached me because <laughs> as like, you know, the the people in, in charge of like Home Assistant, we, we get, and I mean, me or Robbie and some others, like we get approached by a lot of people being like, oh, I have this great plan. Can I get like official endorsement? I want to be the official ex of Home Assistant. And most of the times I'm like, yeah, in the beginning we would say yes. And then those people would disappear, but we still had like this project affiliated with us. So I was kind of skeptical also with this one being like, is it going to happen? Like, are they going to follow through? But here we are, episode three. Um, I think it's awesome. I mean, I'm enjoying listening to it a lot. I think you guys do an awesome job. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk about today is uh, the updater. Um, And not per se. So what the updater does is... It checks for updates with the Home Assistant server. Um, so it can tell you if a new version has been released. But besides checking for updates, it will also, uh, if if the configuration value is not disabled, it will send which Python version you're using and which platform you're using. So if you're like on a Raspberry Pi or if you're using Docker, if you're using a virtual environment. Um, and I thought it would be cool uh, today to talk a bit about like you know the numbers we're seeing right like seeing how many people are using it how many people like uh and of course this is not a full representation of the home assistant user base because this is all you know people can opt out um Mm -hmm. and we have like a comment in the configuration section uh, that talks about like it's sending data so i'm assuming a lot of people will opt out um because people f- don't usually like feel like sharing information, although this information, you know, in my opinion, is very little, it's very, especially very helpful for us. Um, but yeah, let me jump like straight in. Like the my, my, the most interesting statistic for us is that we have sixty six point three percent using Raspberry Pis. Wow, interesting. Yeah, so this is, well, 66.3% running Raspbian 8. Um, mm. There's definitely, there's also Debian Jesse Lite, uh, which some people use, I guess. But yeah, most people are on a Raspberry Pi. And this is, so this is also reflected in like the Python version that we use, um, that we see most users are on, which is 67% being on Python 3.4, um, which is, you know, only 10% are on the new Python 3.6, 
um, which um, makes sense because we actually see that also around 10% is using our Docker image, which we recently updated to Python 3.6. Um, I wish more people were in Python 3.6 because it's a lot faster um, than uh, Python 3.4. There's been a lot of changes under the hood, like not, you know, not based out of Home Assistant, but actually inside Python. Um, and and so does that does that affect functionality in any way? And 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 the reason I'm asking this is if that's if it doesn't, then I mean, there's no reason people shouldn't. Yeah. So we had when we. Uh, well, there was one issue we had with the last release, um, but it's been we uh, addressed it in 47. So, when we initially released our new core, which was a lot faster using uh, async IO, which is a, a, a synchronous input output technology that's included in Python, we started seeing a lot of people were experiencing sec faults where just home system would completely crash. And see, so we had like. Uh, uh, we wrote some code that would monkey patch and actually fix Python under the hood because we couldn't wait for the fix that we uh, that somebody merged to get released in Python 3.5.3. Um, but then we actually figured out when Python 3.6 came around that the bug was fixed for most people, but not everyone. So actually, a bunch of people started experiencing sec faults again in the last release. So we now put another monkey patch in place um, that slows down Python 3.6 actually a bit compared to one of the, it actually reverts one of the optimizations it made, but at least we can prevent sec faults again. Um, and we're still looking into like seeing if we can find the issue inside Python. It has to do with the garbage collector in CPython. So you can imagine that's not an easy task to debug and find yeah. what's going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's you doing it, Paul. It's not me. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, so, so, I mean, so really there's no reason for people to not upgrade to it um, outside of the one thing which we, we have a workaround for right now. Yeah, the, um, yeah. So the, because Python 3.6 is faster and uses less memory. Yeah. Especially important for that 66% of people that are using it on a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, well, so the people that are on a Raspberry Pi are limited by Debian. So Debian Jesse, which came out three years ago, I think, yes, or two years, no, two years ago, it included Python 3.4 as a default Python. Um, and actually, last week, the new Debian came out, Stretch, which is using Python 3.5 as a default. So, I mean, Debian always, 3.6 has only been released in January, so it makes sense that Debian doesn't ship with it yet. Mm. Um, but uh, there's no Raspberry Pi image available yet for, um, for the new Debian. So I would expect people to eventually adopt uh, the new Debian, like in the next six months. Right. Or they will adopt uh, the, our new work on HES.io. Yeah, and that, I mean, we were talking about that, I think it was uh, the last uh, episode, which is a great, great uh, way to do it, too. Yeah, I think um, we haven't really published a lot about HES.io. We have like a whole documentation section on the website, but it's currently uh, not linked from our main menu or linked anywhere on the site. Yeah. We are... 
kind of still in the experimental phase. However, I was talking with Pascal, who is the lead on the project. Um, and we're, we're probably gonna see if we can do an official release uh, the week after the next Home Assistant release. So that will be in two weeks from now. Um, there's still gotta be issues with it, but we realized that like the biggest hurdles uh, have been documented or solved. And it will be awesome just to see how what people can do with it. Right. Yeah, it would be good. And I, I guess uh, having it out there and used by more people will help you find more issues with it as well. Yeah. And I'm not sure if everybody is familiar with what HasIO is. I think you guys touched base on it last episode. Um, yeah, we did. Okay, then I'll I'll not go into too much detail. Yeah. It's just a new way of distributing Home Assistant. Hmm. With more UI, less command line. Have you got any other interesting stats for us from the updater? Um, yes, I have a breakdown of countries. Hmm. So we can see what the majority of the users are, uh, where, they are where the users are from. Um, the biggest country, uh, biggest group of users is from the United States with 32.5%. We have 7.7 from the UK, um, Sweden is 7.3%, the Netherlands is 6.2%, Germany 7.9%, China 3.4%, Canada 3.9%, Australia 4.4%. Those are the big ones. And it is surprisingly low. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I must be one of 17 people using it, apparently. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think... When I, you know, when I look at the user stats, there's always a lot of Europeans uh, that are using it. Like, you know, comparative, I feel like to yeah. uh, mm. the United States. And I, I, it's difficult to like, you know, just justify like why would that happen? I mean, I have some ideas. Like one of the ideas is that like, you know, people have more spare time and less money, so you know tinkering around with technology that is available for free online is an easier, like, makes more sense, maybe. Yeah, makes sense. But, I mean, it's all assumptions. We don't have any real statistics on it. Yeah. Are these uh, these statistics going to be posted anywhere, Paulus, or is that going to remain internal for now? Um, I mean, I just told all of you so it's not really internal anymore but (laughs) (laughs) um yeah we've been thinking about like what's the best way of like publishing these data um and i think we probably should maybe per quarter or per month just like put out like a a report um but like hey this is the these are the stats that we have um in the last version we also enabled uh by opt-in uh, component reporting, but the report I have in front of me doesn't uh, contain any information on if anyone has it enabled or not. But the idea of component reporting is going to be that like if if a component has a serious security flaw, that we should be able to put like a notification, being like, "Hey, we see that you're using like I don't know some lock, and there's like a security flaw. You need to update your firmware." Kind of like helping people like stay secure. That would actually be really cool. Yeah, it's great. Um, That's not even really, you know, that even, you know, not exactly Home Assistant security flow, but even in the firmware, that's a pretty awesome service to be providing to people. 
Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, so we're not there yet, but this is like the ideas that I'm like playing with because it's like we yeah. have, you know, if, if people want to share this information, we can actually give them these uh, functionality. And I think for us, it just be interesting to see like, you know, how many people use the Z-Wave integration um, or the Zigbee integration. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see too. I, I don't know if this is even possible, but if you even like break it out to say, okay, you know what people are doing? Uh, like, like for me, for example, I'm using my smart things as a Zigbee Z-Wave bridge, right? Like, so if we can see, okay, you be, these people are getting these kind of stats from MQTT using something like a signature from there or something like that. That'd be kind of neat. Yeah. I that. So there's always this balance about like, you know, as a development team, you always want to preferably know as much information as you can because then you know what the product is being done and like you know yeah uh, we could even have like automatic exception reporting right because there's like free tools available that we can use for that however it gets into a barrier of like it gets into a territory where we have to take the privacy and the uh, into consideration right people it's their house and like what if a stack trace by accident contains personal information that is can be used to either identify them or you yeah. contains an authentication key. Um, we have to thread very carefully. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of information that in the wrong hands could be used against people with home automation given how integrated many of us have it in our houses you know locks cameras lights uh, motion everything well it's, it's even like some people have like which room and which movies they're watching right it's like mm. such aspects of your personal life and i mean yeah. one of the things that we like you know what we are proud for that home assistant offers is hey we're local first right like we will integrate with cloud services for you, but the core engine runs in your house. Like nobody has to know about it. Yeah. So it would be kind of weird if we start sending it out to ourselves. <laughs> exactly. Fantastic. All right, um, given a, a recent issue, which we're not really going to talk about in detail, did you want to kind of talk to us about your thoughts on the use of the Home Assistant name and you know the code base and other products and the association with it? Yeah, um, definitely. So we had an incident last week where a company put out a Kickstarter um, for a product which was using code of Home Assistant, which on its own is perfect, right? Like we always build Home Assistant in such a way that like pretty much I've provided the core framework of Home Assistant and a front end on top of it. And there's like over 500 different contributors who have like written their own packages to talk to different integrations and then have the integrated those packages in home assistant, right? So it's a big wide network of open source software with like as goal as like get as many people to control their house uh, locally. And so I, I thought it was cool to see that a company was using home assistant. However, they also wanted to be, you know, they, they put up our name to be associated, like, you know, kind of like create uh, a public, uh, like, how did they say? Uh, they were like, the text was like written in such a way that it showed that they were affiliated with us. And 
that was not the case. And I think for us as an open source community, like driven by volunteers, it is not in our benefit of being associated with vendors that sell our code because the they are selling it to people that are not per se developers, right? And those people will not be able to contribute back to Home Assistant to the community because they're going to be part of the community of that vendor. And so I think it's in our best interest, you know, to we don't want our name to be used. Um, I think that's that that's pretty much the gist of it. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I think, think I, I think it'd be pretty yeah. safe to say if anybody needs anything, they should reach out to you. Is that? Yeah. Is no. That... Definitely. Definitely. I I actually I have a call also scheduled with that company later this week um, just to talk about what happened and see like, you know, it's not like, you know, we're going to hate that company now or like, you know, we, I still right. feel like, I mean, they're doing cool work and I don't want to like block them from the home, from participating in the home assistant community. Um, I just, you know, want to make sure that we're, we kind of got off on the wrong foot, but I, I hope we can, you know, I don't know if it's going to be collaboration, but at least, you know, be not enemies in the future. Sure. Yeah, it's good to hear that, yeah, that, you know, they're willing to talk and everything, and that they, you know, they responded reasonably well to the concerns that were raised. So that, yeah, that but they were, good. they were very quick um, within hours of yeah. us uh, putting out the blog post. They, they got the, all the material updated. So I thought that was, uh, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, great. And um, that's the last thing specifically for you is that um, you said that you'd be happy to do a bit of a Q&A um, on the podcast in, you know, a couple of episodes from now if people wanted to, you know, submit questions for you to answer about Home Assistant. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm I'm willing to, like, hop on a future episode as well. Um, so, yeah, I think they can just uh, reach out to you guys with some Q&A and then you guys yeah pick the questions that i will answer or try to answer um <laughs> i mean nowadays the, the the home assistant development is you know it's i am not like the main driver i mean i do still do a lot of the code review and i do a lot of um but i'm not per se doing much of the development as much as i do more almost like community management and code quality mm. it's kind of my thing i'm mainly uh it's taking up my time yeah, and um, yeah, by questions, I'm not really looking for, you know, like tech support questions. It's more, you know, about the project or things like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The, the community and the forums and um, the, you know, the chat community is a, probably a better place for tech support questions. Yeah, definitely. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. 
New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. We have a, a guest, uh, our other guest, who's been very quiet up to this point. Um, we have um, Peter here, who um, is the creator of Floorplan. So, hi, guys. And thanks for having me um, on the podcast today. Yeah, look, I'll give a bit of a rundown about the floor plan and just how it came about. Um, but first of all, just want to um, say that, you know, being able to integrate this uh, into Home Assistant, it's just been a really, really interesting um, adventure, you could call it. Um, even two months ago or so, um, I'd barely even really known about Home Assistant. Um, so I think that's pretty much a good example of how open the architecture is to see how a, a new component or um, or add-on can be sort of developed and and um, become fully fledged in, in such a short time span. Um, so basically the floor plan is really a uh, an extension to the Home Assistant front end. Um, it lets you add your own visuals um, in the shape of SVG image files um, to your front end. And the idea is for those images to represent um, a whole bunch of your home assistant entities. So, you know, uh, sensors, lights, cameras, um, pretty much whatever you want to expose in a visual form that can be done um, using this um, extension. Uh, it's based around, as I was saying, using SVG files. And the reason why SVG files um, are the core of this is because they, they do uh, display nicely on different devices, you know, they scale well. Um, they're, at the end of the day, they're text-based, so you can open them up in a text editor and make changes on the fly. Um, another good thing is that they are a, a very HTML-like sort of structure, so that, um, you know, you've got elements with IDs and, um, you know, regions which are implemented as shapes. Uh, you can have text elements in there as well. Um, at the end of the day, uh, each of the regions in your uh, SVG can be styled. It can have, um, like an element can have hover over text. It can be clicked. So overall, SVG gives us the ability to basically model um, a whole bunch of stuff inside something that's very attractive uh, visually. So um, it was written in JavaScript only because that was, you know, the language that I, I, uh, I know the best. And... Um, and also, it uses the existing Home Assistant uh, WebSocket API for integrating with the backend. Um, and again, that was very nice and easy to, to get up and running. The, um, the API for the WebSockets is just very straightforward and at the same time, very powerful. Um, the project has its own GitHub repository. Um, it's got its own dedicated forum, or I should say thread, on the uh, Home Assistant forums. Uh, that's where all the latest updates and discussions uh, take place. The thread has currently got, it's about 9,500 views over the past month and a half. And um, so it's quite active. It's quite popular, which is good. There's been a lot of good, um, you know, collaboration and ideas coming from that. And, um, and the community has submitted, you know, a whole bunch of really, really nice examples showing what can be done. So, yeah, so that's a little bit of a, like a background story of it. So if there's anything else you want to know... Or... That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you because um, 
I've added the the UI, like the the API, to add like custom panels, and adding the web sockets. Um, I think like a year ago or something, and until you came around, nobody used it, and I was like, "Wait, this is like so easy to get started, and like you only need like some JavaScript, and you already have like an interactive UI." And I'm I'm glad that we have your your repository now because not only is it like it's a, it's it looks amazing and it works amazing and it uses uh it's a great example for other developers how easy it is to build on top of home assistant yeah well it's a bit of a domino effect i guess because what got me started was the um the home assistant page about custom uh state panels and there's a link there um taking you to the github repo I think it's Andre. I'm not sure of his his name, but Andre Git is the uh, the username, and that's where there are some good examples of getting a custom state card um, up and running, and that really got me started. But what the um, initial issue I had was that um, there's a mapping of like a one to one relationship between entities and their custom state cards, and because I wanted to represent potentially many entities on the one state card, I had to sort of come up with this idea of using a dummy entity. Um, as the source of the state card. And then that's where the, the floor plan.yaml configuration was born because that let you then um, you know, introduce your own configuration and, and your whole bunch of other rules and behaviors. Um, so at the end of the day, it still did begin as a single custom um, state card. Um, and then it got enhanced to now support um, the use of uh, a custom panel as well. And just recently, we got it working um, so that you could have multiple floor plans um, across your, your um, Home Assistant front end. Um, so yeah, it's become it's become really flexible um, as we've gone on. Um, the original floor plan project was actually a, a standalone project, and I really just moved the code from there um, into Home Assistant. Uh, it's something that my brother and I were working on um, using Node Red as a like a graphical way of putting together our um, little engine for managing, you know, state changes and, and workflows. Um, and the original UI was actually using Bootstrap. Um, but, you know, as our project progressed, we actually found that we were developing our own little home automation um, platform. And that's where I got to a point where I realized, um, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. There must be some other project out there that's sort of covered all these bases. And that's what really got me looking into other existing um, platforms like OpenHAB, Home Assistant, and so on. Um, but Home Assistant, to me, was the obvious choice. It just seemed like it was really, really modern. It was very open. Um, yeah, and that was just a couple of months ago. And, you know, here we are. And now you've contributed something that's pretty much blowing everyone away. And just, I think that's the amazing thing about open source is that, you know, you can jump in in just a couple of months and you know, become an integral part of everything and, you know, make massive contributions. And, yeah, it's such an awesome thing. And I think we talk a lot of, on this podcast about the wife acceptance factor. <laughs> and I think that yeah. the floor plan helps with that because it's a nice, simple, easy way to get a view of everything that's going on without having to, you know, go to Grafana or, you know, browse through tabs and the thing and find the, stat, the you know, the you know default state cards or, you know, go to the command line even or anything like that. It's just all right there and they can go, well, I know if I, you know, 
this room is here, so it must be there. And that, yeah, another definite good addition for the wife acceptance factor for home for home assistant. Yeah, and yeah. I think the visual um, aspect of it is really appealing to people. Um, you know, whenever you have something textual in nature versus something, you know, graphical and, you know, colours and coming to life and, and giving you the ability to, to interact and actually, um, you know, fire off some commands and, and actions using the interface, um, I can definitely see where the, where the popularity comes in there. Um, but what's interesting is that it hasn't just remained at the level of being just the floor plan. Uh, people have gone a step further and started implementing sort of all sorts of weird and wonderful um, visuals of um, whether it be, you know, remote controls with buttons that do stuff. Um, I ended up with a bit of free time on a, on a Saturday afternoon and ended up um, putting together an image of a ring doorbell, which basically shows the current battery level and the motion detection and the and the buzzer um, real-time status as well. Um, you know, Logitech uh, squeeze box players showing, you know, the current um, playlists and albums and that sort of thing. Um, mm. You know, people putting multiple floors of their house on there as well. So I think th the name itself, floor plan for Home Assistant, um, doesn't necessarily represent, you know, what it's limited to. So I guess the sky's the limit, really. Whatever is... Um, I guess graphical in nature can be presented in that way. Yeah, that's fantastic, and the, I guess that kind of goes along with everything with Home Assistant. Is the you know, the level of what you can do with it's only limited by your imagination with you know automations and everything like that. Whatever you want to do, you you can do. Yeah, and 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 I think that's why it's important to have those documentations too, right? Like on on the Home Assistant website. Yes. Yeah, well, oh, that's something that reminds that... me. That'd be cool to mention here. Oh, sorry, Peter. No, no, you go for it, Paulus. Okay, um, we just added search to the documentation. Hooray! <laughs> it's um, actually so. I only there's this new startup. It's called Algolia, and I was doing some uh, React uh, work on the front end. Um, at work, and I was looking at their uh, documentation search. It was like powered by Algolia. And I went to the website and it was, uh, they offered for free to open source uh, projects. So I pretty much just plugged it in and it's been awesome. Uh, now all of a sudden we have search across all the documentation. That's amazing. Yeah, it's so good because the, the documentation just grows and grows with every release. And it's awesome documentation, but yeah, sometimes it's a bit of a challenge to find things. But that is amazing news. Um, just regarding the, uh, if I can chime in again um, about the floor plan, from mm. what I could see, Paulus, there's, um, is it the Home Assistant front end is moving towards, is it Polymer version 2.0? Yes. Okay. What what changes do you think that will bring or advantages to um, to what we have? Uh, that's a very good question. So, so Polymer 2, um, so actually we're like, Polymer 1 was based on HTML standards uh, for web components called V0, which was an unofficial web component standard that Google implemented into Chrome that uh, was pretty much just to like get a feel for how it is, if like if this standard would like uh, work and how it, uh, you know, how it would work, like how does it incorporate the rest of the web platform? And 
based on the experiments with V0, they managed to get it standardized as uh, Web Components V1 officially. Um, and V1 has been implemented in Safari now and in Chrome um, with uh, Edge and Firefox have it underway. And so what Polymer 2 is bringing to the table is that it will support the V1 Web Component specification. I know this is all very technical talk, but what it boils down to is that the, app, the our front end will be a lot faster on Safari, including Safari on iOS. So for until now, we were fast on Android devices because Chrome had a native implementation of web components. I'm, I'm assuming you were using Chrome. Um, but now iOS, if you're using Safari, we will be fast too. And as a developer of web components, you uh, there are a few changes that you have to make and they're related to um, how child elements are um, like passed around uh, in web components, um, which now is in V1, it's slots. And so actually when I upgraded, I was playing around with the front end in Polymer 2 already, and we hardly needed any changes besides upgrading all our elements to the, the hybrid versions, because they, they managed to get, to put out a standard that is both compatible with Polymer 1 and Polymer 2. And so we're gonna run that version so that the migration path is gonna be uh, very painless. Okay, so yeah, we can expect, you know, the floor plan might need a few changes once um, that new version of Home Assistant um, is released. And also regarding the actual use of Polymer as a front-end framework, uh, how did you come to, to start um, the Home Assistant front-end using that rather than, let's say, um, you know, Angular or something else? Well, there, there are two reasons for it. Um, the main reason was that I was using React at work. And so at home, like I use Home Assistant pretty much like also I, not anymore because I cannot make big changes anymore, but for stability reasons. But I used to use Home Assistant as a test bed for new technology, right? So I wanted to learn about WebSockets. Okay, let me make a WebSocket API. I wanted to learn about... Um, MQTT, okay, let's make an MQTT component. And the, the same was with uh, Polymer. I wanted to use web components. And the other thing that uh, draw me to Polymer is actually that um, where React and Angular are frameworks for the front end, Polymer, besides being a framework for the front end, also contains uh, UI elements. And these are UI elements that Google itself uses in Polymer products inside and outside of Google. And it means that they are accessible, they're beautiful, and they're fast. And so for me to put together the Home Assistant front end, I could focus like completely on the UI and the UX, instead of also having to develop all the components from scratch. Um, and now, I mean, it's been, we've been with Polymer for two years, over two years, I think already, two and a half maybe. Um, and it's it's really paid off, like it's, it's fast. Uh, we're able to leverage code splitting easily. Um, we spend a lot of, I spend a lot of time in like just optimizing it because like our, we aim to run on phones. And so I spend a lot of time just making the front end like super fast on phones. And Polymer really helped in achieving that. 
Yeah, I can definitely and, see the, um, the advantages on mobile devices because that's what I constantly test on, um, mostly Android and, and Windows phone. Um, normally, if it works on them, it'll just work on the um, on the uh, iOS products. Um, but yeah, a really good advantage that the floor plan has made use of is the um, the more info pop-ups. So that in the floor plan, when you do hover over, let's say, a camera, um, if you click on it, it'll just uh, resort to using the built-in component that's already been implemented within the Home Assistant uh, infrastructure to basically display what is normally displayed and that is like a live camera feed, for example. So, you know, thanks to uh, the way Home Assistant's been implemented in Polymer, the floor plan's really just a shortcut that sits in between what would normally happen in uh, Home Assistant anyway. So, yeah, so looking forward to Polymer too. Well, fantastic. Uh, thanks for joining us, Peter. It's good to get a, you know, a good intro of the full plan for those that may not have heard about it. And, um, yeah, thanks very much. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. So to, to wrap things off, I'm just going to, we'll just cover off a few new things that came out in 0.47. Um, Paulus briefly mentioned the monkey patching of Python 3.6 um, to fix the seg faults, which is kind of nice because the last thing you need with your automation is for it to seek fault in the middle of the night and then nothing be working when you get up in the morning um there is a way to disable it if you so wish and that information's all in the release notes um next python scripting which is um an awesome addition um, i'm quite looking forward to you know, breaking it out and doing some things with it because i've been doing a lot of um uh, using MQTT to fire off to Node-RED and then kind of doing my scripting in there, which is you know, adding an extra component. So being able to do it all inside Home Assistant is going to be really good. I think someone, I don't know who it was, has added some points that they wanted to talk about with the scripting. Um, uh, yeah, that would be That me. was you, I presume. Yep. Yeah, well, so first yeah. of all, uh, it looks like we turned this podcast episode very technical in a, a few areas. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Uh, you know, last time we were talking about, like, you guys were talking about, you know, the where they sell the Amazon Echo and the Google Home. And yeah. now we're, <laughs> we're talking about, like, mobile performance optimizations. Uh, anyway, this is going to be down that last route again. So Python scripting, it means that you're able to it, it's a very cool new functionality and it's something that not has been um requested directly but a lot of people have raised uh, their issues with like they they pretty much just hate writing yaml um <laughs> and i understand because our automation configuration is has almost turned into a, like its own programming language but then yaml based and for a long time, I, I always like when people were like, "Oh, I don't want to write YAML." I was like, you know, write a custom component. It's it's pretty easy. It's pretty straightforward. But it never really uh, took off. And then AppDemon came around, and AppDemon has been very successful. So AppDemon is a third-party integration, um, and it allows people to write small Python scripts that hook into Home Assistant. And AppDemon is very powerful. Uh, it does automatic reloading, and it will. Uh, it, it fully integrated Home Assistant. But I felt there was still a kind of like a, a need for something like in between because AppDemon requires you to install third-party application. It uh, 
uh, requires you to configure and set it up. And so I was, uh, at some point it just came to me uh, that like, hey, we just could use Python because we are written in Python to just script uh, things on the fly. Um, and so I um, I added the Python script component. It's running in a sandboxed Python environment. That means that not everything of Python is available. Um, we're already, some people are realizing there's pieces missing and we're working with them to get those added to Home Assistant. Um, but for now it already works very well where like it's the, the Python scripts are exposed as a service in Home Assistant. So from your automation inside your trigger, you can say, hey, call this uh, Python script and pass this data in that is available inside the automation. And then based on that data, you can do like, you can query any state in the home assistant. You can call services, you can fire events. You can even update states. So you could like keep track of a counter or, or et cetera. Um, and so it's, it, I think it's a really cool new component. Um, and Fabian has added a new category in our uh, community forums. It's under share your projects. Um, and there people can share their Python scripts um, about like, you know, the functionality that they've added and uh, how you can use it. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a really cool new feature. Um, and I think in the future, what we're gonna, the, fu the future of this functionality is gonna be that we're gonna maybe add some missing functions that people are like, they wanna have. So one of the functionalities that people were missing was uh, the ability to parse JSON. Um, those will be added, um, but it will very much stay around to be just like a, a small subset of Python that you can use to script Home Assistant so that you don't have to get fully stuck in YAML land anymore. Yeah, that's great. I'm just having a quick nosy at the um, example scripts and I'm just having a look at your count, how many people are home, which is actually pretty handy. The examples I put up where uh, one was just counting how many times something happened and the other one was actually counting how many people are home. Um, mm. But you can count anything, right? Like how many doors are open right now? How many, whatever data is available, you can run any code on it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to converting some of my automations over to use Python scripting though and have a little bit less spaghetti code because there's some things that you know you write in YAML and it takes you know 30 lines which you could write in three lines of Python so I'm quite looking forward to getting things cleaned up yeah there, there goes your weekend too <laughs> oh yes <laughs> <laughs> actually this shouldn't be that bad there should be pretty just looking at it, it looks pretty straightforward so yeah and one of the nice functionalities that we as part of the implementation is that it will uh, instead of where like with if you're do, um, developing a component or platform for home assistant you always have to restart home assistant to test your script mm. in this case uh, the scripts are always loaded on the fly again so if you make a change you can don't have to restart home assistant you can just call the script again yeah that that makes a big difference especially with my um limitless led lights that switch off every time you restart home assistant <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah so Is i they? guess that's that's number one for you dan 
Yeah, absolutely. Cause, yeah, because the limitless lights have to be, you know, initialized to a non-state. That non-state is off. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's why I got rid of most of them. Um, one new feature that I noticed in zero point four seven, which is I'm mentioning for mostly selfish reasons, is the um, ONVAF cameras. Um, a lot of the really cheap, nasty, like thirty US dollar cameras you buy off eBay are ONVAF type cameras. Um, I've been running them through various, um, you know, NVR network video recorder software, and then pulling you know images into Home Assistant. But being able to do that directly, or uh, again, remove another link in the chain and bring everything else into Home Assistant. It's it's a you know, the good thing about all these components that are getting added is that the the less external things you have to do, the you know, you've got one place to look for everything. Yeah, that's actually this release forty seven, we actually broke the uh we're now the number of integrations, we're now at seven hundred thirteen. So we surpassed wow. the seven hundred integrations. Amazing. Yeah, that that's that's mind blowing. It's just and they just keep coming. Like, it's, you know, you're like, I feel like we have every major integration. And then somebody comes, you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, we, we didn't have that one yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the ecosystem is just growing too, right? Like, if you even if you look at how many startups there are or, or even how many new products existing companies are releasing, right? So, I mean, it's, it's very cheap to add you know, the a smart part to it, right? Like the chips for like an ESP, for example, are like a couple of dollars. And um, the biggest concern with all these things is always security, right? Like anyone can put like a Wi-Fi able product out, but can you support it? Can it like uh, withstand the, you know, if, if, are you going to support it forever? Or at some point are you just going to say, don't use this product anymore? All right. I think that's probably a good place to leave it unless anyone had anything else they wanted to talk about or any final thoughts i think i'm good i'm good yep same here uh, thanks very much to um peter and um polis as well for um joining us great to have you both on and you know, get a bit more insight into the project from you polis yeah no problem it was uh, great being here and Looking forward to being with you guys next time. Of course. Fantastic. Thanks, everyone. And we'll um, see you next time.